Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us this evening. Welcome to Beyond the Border. This is a community discussion about how immigration enforcement has impacted our community here in Austin and across the Central Texas area. My name is Saida Hassan, and I am a reporter at KUT News covering affordability and development. And I'm Joy Diaz. I am also a reporter. I work with uh, the child of KUT, which is the Texas Standard. I've reported on immigration for a long time with KUT since 2005, and now I do it for the Texas Standard. And I'm Ashley Lopez. I cover healthcare and politics in Texas for KUT. So just to reiterate, uh, Joy mentioned earlier, but we do have headsets available for anyone in the audience who would like to follow along with the conversation tonight. We will have a live translation in Spanish. Um, so please feel free to pick out a headset out front, or you can raise your hand and someone will bring a headset to you. And I'll let Joy translate this message as well. Si necesita traducción, tenemos traductores disponibles y tenemos audífonos que puede agarrar en la parte de atrás del edificio o si quiere nada más levante su mano y le traemos uno de esos audífonos para que pueda disfrutar de la ponencia en español. Thank you, Joy. So a little bit about tonight. We are going to hear from members of our community who have experienced deportations in their own families, as well as people who are really on the front lines of working with immigrant communities around Austin. This event is going to be broken up in a series of different panels. Each one is going to cover a different issue, ranging from the economy to access to health care and how all of those things tie into the conversation around immigration. After each panel, we will be opening up the discussion. So if you have a story to share or a thought or a question, you will have a chance to do so at that time. And we'd love to hear from all of you. You can also tell us about how federal immigration policies have affected your life. Uh, after the show, we will have members of our multimedia team available outside, and they will actually be taking video recordings of folks who would like to share their stories with KUT. And uh, we'll have someone outside. They'll direct you to a room just down the hall where they'll be making those recordings. And... If you are unable to share your story tonight or if you can't stick around through the whole show, we have an option for you to leave a voicemail on our Google Voice line where you can tell us how issues of immigration have touched you in your own life or, or maybe someone you know. And that number is 737-443-9466. And don't worry about memorizing it because it's also listed on the flyers that you should have received on your way in. And you can follow along with the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag BeyondTheBorderATX. So thank you to Joy and Ashley. We'll be hearing a lot more from them a little bit later yeah, on this evening. <laughs> a little tight up here. <laughs> So we're going to transition now. Uh, we're going to hear a story that aired yesterday on KUT. Um, but for those of you who might have missed it, uh, let's recap a little bit. So I had the pleasure of speaking with an Austin resident named Valeria Serna. Valeria is a member of the local chapter of United We Dream Austin. And 10 years ago, Valeria's brother was deported to Mexico. As you can imagine, it's an experience that really changed her life. And she recently spoke with KUT about that experience. Experience. So after we hear some of her story, Valeria and I will sit down for a one-on-one -on -one conversation about her experience. So uh, let's take a moment and listen to a piece from Valeria's story. A lot of people think that it happens just at the border, but 
you know, ICE comes into our neighborhoods, they have raids, and, you know, it's not something new, and it's not something just happening at the, happening at the border. It's happening, you know, in our cities. And so it's important to remind ourselves that there's also local work that needs to be done. You know, today when you go home, like, really just love your family, love your friends, your neighbors, be with each other, you know, if they're still here with you, you know, give them a hug, a kiss, and, and just really appreciate them because there's nothing like that. Um, nothing like that feeling. So please join me now in welcoming to the stage Valeria Serna. Valeria, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Hi, Sayida. Thank you for having me today. So, Valeria, for our, our audience members here who haven't had a chance to hear your story on KUT, could you sort of recap for us what exactly happened and how your life and your family's life was touched by deportation and Im immigration policies? Um, hi, everyone. Hola a todos. My name is Valeria Serna. I am an Austin resident. I am originally from Coahuila, Mexico. Um, I've been here in Austin about since 10 years. I'm a young entrepreneur. I'm a college student. I am a leader at United We Dream Austin, Texas, and I am the sister of someone who was deported 10 years ago. So to get to my story, uh, my family, my older brother, nine years older than me, Rafael, my sister, 13 years older than me, Mabel, and my mom, uh, we migrated to the, uh, to the United States in 2006. Uh, we've been here ever since. Um, my mom spent a lot of time working, so I spent a lot of time with my brother and my sister. My brother would pick me up from school. My sister would cook meals, and we had a nice routine going. It wasn't unt until July 2008 where my brother was first arrested and eventually deported. Um, I couldn't really understand why that had happened to my brother. I was young and I, and I really tried so hard to understand like what my mom said and I just couldn't. I didn't know how somebody could be so evil and do that. So I don't think I really, really understood his presence missing until I went back to school where you know nobody was there to pick me up from the bus anymore or to take me to school. My brother was everything. He was my father figure. He was a father figure for my nephew, and he was there just supporting us. So I think it was something that was very difficult for me to experience because I was so young, but still I just felt angry all the time, and I felt like somebody robbed me from that opportunity to be with my family, and that's the worst feeling in the world. And so now as I grew up, I became a recipient of DACA and, and that was something that really was eye-opening. I got in touch with um, an organization called United We Dream and it was that first moment where I was in DC, we were fighting for the DREAM Act and that was the first time I ever felt liberated, the first time I openly said, you know, I'm undocumented, I'm unafraid and that was really the moment where I felt liberated, where I thought about my brother and how I thought about all the injustices in the system and how they affected my family. 
And I think that was just the moment where I decided to step up and be a leader and, and do it not just for my brother and for my sister, but for the families of many. Thank you for sharing, Valeria. And, you know, uh, as we know, thousands of people across Austin turned out a couple of weeks ago for the Families Belong Together rally, and you were one of the speakers at that rally. Um, and you and I spoke a little bit about how you went from really not being comfortable talking about this experience openly to speaking about it in front of thousands of people. What has that transition been like for you, and how does it feel to have so many people paying attention to the issue of family separation on such a broad scale? Um, I think the first time when I went to speak at the rally, I was extremely nervous because just a few months ago, in December, actually, 2017, that was the first time I ever said I was undocumented, and that was in D.C. When I came back, I, I thought there something needs to happen. So I, I was attending ACC, and I decided to open up a, a student group. And, you know, it's called Voices, and it's directed as a safe space for immigrants and all people of color. And I just thought that something needed to be done. So it went from just having, you know, of being ashamed for it as, as to saying, no, this is something powerful. It's not just me, there's a community behind me. And I think that's really what's, what's changed that I found out and I realized that I'm not alone in this. So I think it's, it's very important for me to continue sharing and standing up because there are people there that are still afraid, so I want to be their voice. One of the things that really struck me that you said, we talked a bit about what it's like living in Texas and what it's like living in Austin more specifically as somebody who is undocumented. And the city of Austin has, of course, adopted policies to make it a more welcoming place for undocumented residents. Um, but you talked about how that hasn't totally shaped uh, or totally transformed your experience of being a Texas resident um, despite those more welcoming policies. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I grew up in East Austin and, and Riverside near Town Lake, right where, um, before it was like condominiums and retail shops, you know. <laughs> um, but I grew up right there in East Austin. I loved it. And then I felt... I felt optimistic because I had my family together, but I think as I grew up, I started noticing that, you know, although we, although we leave, live in a very liberal city and we have all these people that welcome immigrants, but in reality, there was not just recently, the SB4 law was implemented, so that terrorized my, my community, and it, it went from back in East Austin where I was okay driving, where my family felt just okay, it went from that to worse, where although I have DACA, I still look around my shoulder, you know, making sure that I'm not doing anything wrong because, you know, the, the possibility of me getting arrested is very high just because of I'm a woman and I'm an immigrant. So I think although Austin, I love Austin and it's a great city, I still don't feel safe because of those laws that are there to attack my community. So something that I really want to stress that if you have the, the privilege of being a voter to get out there vote, and if you don't have that, um, that opportunity, then you know, to get involved in, and do something locally. You mentioned that you are a recipient of DACA and that that was something that was a really transformative part of your life growing up. Um, 
Can you talk to us about how your life has changed since becoming a beneficiary of DACA? I think DACA was something that really just gave me a lot of comfort because I had a lot of uncertainty growing up being an immigrant. I, you know, I wanted to go to college, but was I going to be able to practice my degree? Was I able, was I going to be able to work anywhere? And so when DACA was announced, I think that really just changed my whole world and actually motivated me to continue going because there was something there for me, something that kind of guaranteed that I was, that all my hard work was gonna pay off. So it opened up a lot of doors for me and especially with a lot of employers and universities, but it's still, you know, it sucked that I wasn't able to go home and, you know, see my brother or see my family. I know that your brother has been such a pivotal part of your life and just such a supportive person for you as you have gone through this journey of, you know, applying for, for, for jobs and going through school. And um, can you talk to us about how when you have been separated from a loved one, um, what is your relationship like today? How do you guys keep in touch? What is your daily interaction with your brother? You know, I just spoke to my brother like a few minutes ago before I, I got up here. And although he's not here, you know, physically, he's always there with me supporting me. You know, he's living in Mexico and, you know, it's not financially, it's not the best situation. So I just remember him saying, like, if you ever need money for, you know, college, let me know. I'll come up with $100. And to me, it's not about him giving me money, but it's more about making the effort to be there for his sister, regardless of where he is. So every time that now that I'm opening up, he's so supportive. He's always there, you know, he, thanks to technology, I, I'm able to talk to him very frequently and to my nephew and to my niece. So although we're really far away, I'm glad that, you know, at least I can talk to him on the phone. Yeah. I know that technology has played a big part in keeping your relationship and keeping you guys connected day to day. Um, so thank you so much, Valeria, for sharing some more of your experience with us. At this time, we would like to open it up to audience members um, and, and open it up to any questions that you may have for Valeria. We've got a mic right here um, up front in between the two sections. Do we have any questions from the audience for Valeria? If you wouldn't mind stepping up to the mic, are you able to get through? Oh, there is there another one? Oh, yes. Here we go. Oh, got it. There we go. <laughs> uh, I have a simple question. Just um, it's simple to say and hard to answer. Um, what gives you hope? What um, gives you energy to 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 keep trying? I think, you know, family and friends, that's, I've been very blessed and very lucky to have people around me that have always ground me. My great, you know, my, my mom and my brother, my sister, my nephews, but also my, my friends, my boyfriend. I think 
those are the people that have been there for me. And I think that's what gives me hope that, you know, we're not alone, that the power of organizing works. We've won, you know, we've been victorious before. We've won DACA. So I think that's what keeps me going because it's not just me by myself. It's, it's a whole entire community. Thank you. I have a question, Valeria. Yes. Up here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. The lights are the blinding. The lights are blinding me. So one of the things you said is that you have DACA, but that you couldn't go and visit your brother. And I am confused or curious because I thought that DACA allowed you to travel. Is that because things have changed with this current administration? Or were you not able to leave the country even with DACA? So the way DACA works is that they, they hand young, undocumented, um, so it's a deferred action for childhood arrivals. It's given to children that were here since, you know, before 2006, I believe, or 2007. And you're given a permit to work legally for two years, and you're safe from deportation for two years. Now, it's not a visa, so you can't cross the border, um, but it's just a work permit, and it's protection from being deported, essentially. And there used to be a program called Advanced Parole, which is if you apply, like maybe you had um, wanted to study abroad or maybe a family member passed away and that was the last time you were going to see them, you could apply that for months in advance. Um, but once Trump came into office, he took that away, the Advanced Parole, so now that's not even an option. And as you know, he rescinded DACA, so here we are. Any other questions? All right. Well, thank you so much, Valeria, for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. So at this time, my uh, colleague, Ashley Lopez, is going to lead our next panel. That's going to be a discussion with Kate Lincoln-Goldfinch, who is an attorney here in Austin who has been working with mothers detained at the Hutto Detention Center, many of whom have yet to be reunited with their children. So please welcome Ashley Lopez and Kate Lincoln-Goldfinch. So um, actually, let's get like a formal introduction from you. Like, talk to me, Kate, about what you do and how long you've been doing this work. I'm a private immigration lawyer. I've been doing it for 10 years, and I focus on deportation defense, um, humanitarian cases, and family-based immigration cases. Yeah. Okay. So let's, looking back at your career, I mean, what has changed in the past year or two? Like, what now would you see as one of the bigger obstacles you're facing and, like, advocating for your clients? Uh, the last year and a half has been just uh, sort of wave after wave after wave. I was thinking, you know, before this panel of all of the things that have happened. And there's all of the stuff that we all know about, like the cancellation of DACA and the TPS programs and the, the Muslim travel ban and, of course, the separation of families. But behind the scenes, there's been all of this stuff happening, too. Um, so we've had, you know, w right after Trump took office, he issued some policy memos where he changed the enforcement priorities. And so under President Obama, typically if someone got put, you know, into immigration custody, they would only be put into deportation proceedings if they were 
an enforcement priority, like if they had a criminal history or a recent immigration violation. Um, but one of the big changes is, is that everyone is an enforcement priority under Trump. So that, you know, coupled with things like SB4, when someone gets, you know, booked or fingerprinted for driving without a license, they're immediately funneled into the deportation system. Um, and so it has, as Valeria said, just completely terrorized the immigrant community. Um, and then there's been other sort of behind the scenes stuff that's gone on just that you, that has affected my practice as an immigration lawyer where, you know, processing times have doubled for every type of application, green card applications, citizenship applications, and um, we're seeing things like um, just last week the administration announced um, that they, for denied cases, they were going to refer the vast majority of them to deportation proceedings. And that this week, instead of issuing requests for more evidence in a case, um, they will just outright deny the case. So it's just these little things, and it's week after week, and it's been so hard to keep up with all of the changes and the ways that it's affecting our clients. Um, it's been a really rough year, but I would say, hands down, the most horrific thing I've ever, ever experienced um, in my career has been the last six weeks, two months. Yeah, is that because of family separation yes, at the border? Yes, absolutely. Um, let's talk about that. Um, how is, you know, I know they're, they're, the federal government has been slowly reuniting <clears throat> some of those families. Um, how would you say that's, that's going? It's a total mess. Um, the whole thing has been a mess. Um, it, none, no thought was put into how it was going to be done, so we saw just complete chaos in the implementation of the policy. Um, and one of the things that was so hard for me talking to the moms at Hutto is having them tell me their stories of the separation <clears throat> the moment of separation, um, because what became clear is that in the beginning, when the policy was just implemented, the Border Patrol officers were physically ripping the children out of the parents' arms, and so the first woman I met, you know, was told to bring her son into another room, and she was holding him tightly and was told he was going to be taken, and um, she's an indigenous uh, woman who spoke very little Spanish, but knew enough um, to know what they were about to do. And her son was crying and she was crying, her five-year-old son, and they just, you know, physically pulled a child out of her arms. And that, that happened in the beginning. And there's stories of women who were breastfeeding, whose children were taken, um, Border Patrol officers yelling at them not to pull their breasts out, that they're not farm animals, although they would treat them like animals. Um, and then what became clear is that the officers started to realize that um, there would be more of a scene if the parents understood what was happening and the children understood what was happening. So they started to trick them, and they started to <clears throat> do things like um, tell them that their child was going to be taken away for you know a bath or a photo or processing, or that the parent was going to be taken to court, you know, to get processed for illegal entry, which took 24 hours, and that their kids would be there when they got back, and then they weren't. Um, so that, I mean, just that moment, the stories of that moment, then, of course, thinking about what the children were told, because I spoke to at least 10 different women who told me separately that they were told by the Border Patrol officers that they didn't love their children, they weren't going to see them again. They were going to be deported. Um, their children were going to be adopted, and that uh, people who love their children don't bring them across the border. And these are 10 different women who don't know each other. 
Um, and so it's clear to me that this was a consistent message that was being delivered by Border Patrol officers. Um, and then, of course, similar messages are being given to the children. Um, and we've heard reports that the children are asking their parents, why did you leave me? You don't love me. Um, and so now we see, you know, it's been, I could talk for a long time about the, the battle of the last two months, but now we see some, a trickle of reunifications happening and these children are damaged. I mean, they're completely traumatized. Um, and now in the moment what's happening is that transfers are happening of parents and children to detention centers and reunifications are happening like literally in the parking lot of detention centers and these people are just being left. Um, with, no, I mean, nothing. They, get, they, they put the clothes back on that they were wearing when they crossed the border. Um, and it's chaos. Um, you know, I was on a conference call today with first responders in all different agencies all over the state, and nobody knows what's going on. And people are trying to respond, and it is a complete mess. How do you explain what's happening to some of these clients? Because you're, in a lot of ways, a lawyer is one of the only advocates these people have, someone to explain what's going on and what their options are. I mean, what are those conversations like? Honestly, you know, I mean, they understand what's going on. Uh, they, none of them expected that this would happen, but they all know who our president is. Um, and what's been really, I don't know, neat, I don't have the word, but what's been nice is to talk to them about the reaction of the American public um, and, and how much strength that has given these separated families. Um, they've, they've all talked to me about that, how much it means to them that we've all reacted the way that we have. Um, and then in terms of how I talk to my clients who are, who are terrorized, um, who aren't part of the separation, is I, you know, I try to remind people that this is a blip on the radar. This is, you know, when you look at the history, the arc of history, this is just a moment. And as long as we don't get, like, you know, immigration reform passed under this Congress, this is not going to last. Um, real lives are being affected um, and hard things are happening right now, but we're going to move on. And there's going to be a time, um, hopefully soon, where we all look back on this time and go, good Lord, that was hard. And thank God it's over. Um, yeah. And, um, but for the meantime, there's a new policy that is being implemented, and it's family detention, families being detained together. Um, how's that going? I mean, do you think that solves the problem that no. you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, this is the third round of family detention. Uh, I became an immigration lawyer because as a law student, I went to the Hutto Detention Center, and I met a family of asylum seekers who had a little baby who was wearing a prison-issued onesie, and the mother asked me if I would hold her baby because I smelled like the outside world, and then she asked me to sneak her baby out, and there were barbed wire everywhere. I mean, it was it was prison with babies inside, and that resulted in a lawsuit that resulted in improved conditions, and then family detention ended. It happened again four years ago. It was a battle. I represented a girl with brain cancer who wasn't getting medical care. Um, and then we've, you know, morphed into what we've had in the last several years, which is short detention of families, less than 20 days. Um, and now the administration is, the Trump administration is attempting to revive indefinite detention of families. Um, and, you know, there's going to be another legal battle, and I don't think that the policy will survive. But in the meantime, these children are in prison. Yeah, and my last question to you is, you know, you had mentioned that um, a lot of the your clients that you spoke to felt 
um, were really emotional about the fact that um, a lot of Americans were um, rea reacting, particularly the family separation policy. You know, I got to say, we put this together during the height of that. We had, you know, uh, Saida had the idea of um, doing an event about this. And I feel like in the past few weeks, you can already see the focus shifting. There's less media coverage. Um, are you concerned about that? Mm -hmm. I am concerned. Um, you know, I think it's it all comes down to the vote, like Valeria said. So those of us who have that privilege need to remember this um, several months from now. And um, and and to stay tuned to you know the the violations of human rights and due process that are to come under the administration, including family detention. Um, but but most importantly, we need to remember when it's time to vote. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much. I'm going to open up um, the conversation to y'all. Um, if you have a question, comment, story you want to share, I think there's like a floating mic somewhere. I don't know where it is. Um, does anyone have a? So, I think I see a question over here, or, or actually, I'd be the worst person to direct over here. <laughs> I can kind of like half see. Oh, there you are. Okay. Hi. Um, you might not know the answer to this, but um, there was a report of like right before the family separations that um, was reporting that the Trump administration had lost track of like thousands of children. Do you know anything about that or have you worked with any of those cases? Yeah, so that was actually children who came in who were unaccomp true unaccompanied minors who came in alone and were released to family members. And then <clears throat> that was an estimate. I think it was during a you know, congressional hearing. Someone from HHS said we estimate that 20% of the kids who have been released to family members have not checked back in with us or returned our phone calls. So while it is um, very possible that some of those children were released into danger and are currently in danger, they're not true lost children. Um, and so those sort of two stories got tangled in the beginning of all of this. Um, but that, you know, that wasn't the, that wasn't the issue. It, it really had nothing to do with the separation of the families. Um, hi, Kate. I wanted to know, how was it possible that a one-year-old child had to go to court to, uh, quote-unquote, represent himself? Um, I, I just, I'm really, had, had a hard time wrapping my head around how that was, you know, possible. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean... <clears throat> The immigration court system is technically a civil system, and so um, respondents in immigration court aren't granted the constitutional right to counsel, even though many of them are facing something much more serious than jail time. Um, and so children are included in that. They're not given counsel by the government. And so that's part of, that's one of the reasons that all of this has been um, such a poor decision is that um, these children are taken from their parents, and so now the, the parent and each of the children are in their own separate court proceedings, and they're all expected to somehow find counsel and represent themselves, and they're just on different legal tracks. Um, so you're saying that children do not get to be represented, like, by social services simply because they're not, um, th they don't have any entitlements under our Constitution for that? That's correct. Okay, thank you. Hi, my name is Yuridia, and I heard you 
say the words, move on. Um, and so my question is, do you think that there is a role you and other service providers can play in the greater movement for liberation for immigrants? Um, you mean other than <clears throat> direct services? At this moment under this situation, yes. Well, um, you know, one of the things, I mean, I don't equate what, what I have experienced with what Validia has experienced, but similar to her, I mean, when all of this blew up and I was um, working with families in detention, I all of a sudden got um, asked to do media interviews or asked, my clients were asked to do media interviews and, um, you know, it was very exposing for them and for me. Um, and so I just made a conscious decision at the beginning of it just to say yes to everything because the, the public was hungry for um, stories and it's our job as the people on the ground on the front lines to humanize these issues for people who may not have a connection to immigrants. So that's something that's, you know, been a focus of mine recently. Um, and then, of course, you know, just continuing to do the work. And then I think there's, you know, sort of the overall picture of what's happening in our nation um, is that, you know, our our checks and balances for the moment are kind of working, you know, that we're relying on our judiciary to um, not completely take us off the rails. Um, our executives out of control, our Congress is not acting, um, and the courts are sort of towing the line. And so I think now more than ever, the lawyers and litigation are really critical, and um, hopefully the administration will continue to follow court orders, um, because without that, I think our democracy is really in danger. Yeah. That's what I, um, that's a nice dovetail. I was I'm right here. Hey. Hey. <laughs> um, without getting into sort of the litigation weeds, um, I'm curious about these are executive orders for the most point, or, or or just policies that are being implemented. How does it change uh, week to week your job um, in terms of okay, this is a new policy that I then have to um, go to court and try to figure out? Is that sort of what's happening? Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, we have a weekly staff meeting, and every week it's like, okay, this new memo came down, and, you know, how's this going to change our cases? But, you know, um, the courts are some, coming down with some helpful cases, um, so sometimes that's fun to think about, like, how new court cases can be applied. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a roller coaster ride for sure. And then is it going to be municipalities and then subsequently counties? And, um, you know, I guess the federal courts are doing, um, are sending things down, but it, are there different jurisdictions um, that are sort of dictating how things go? Not really. I mean, it's all federal. Yeah. All right. I think we reached our limit for questions. I think maybe a one more. Okay, one more. I'm trying to be like taskmaster. You can tell this is a radio event because the sound is really good. I know. <laughs> That's all that matters, in my opinion. Hi, Kate. My name is Brenda. Um, I have a question. I read an article last week in the Washington Post. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the fundraiser that went viral for Ra Raices. Mm -hmm. um, in the article I read, it has mentioned that they're overwhelmed with the donations. So, mm -hmm. I mean... Obviously, the public outcry is there, um, but they have decided to give $20 million of those dollars back to the DHS. Do you have any... I don't really know what the question is, but like, is there something that DHS is going to be able to do with those funds to help, or is this just... 
Sure. I mean, I think I think that move by Raisa's. Um, I, th I don't think anybody expected, you know, the federal government to accept that bond payment and release all of the families. I think it was more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for for show? Symbolic. It was a more symbolic gesture. Um, I think. Um, I know the people at Raisa's, and I have complete faith that they're going to do really good work with that money. Um, and I also think there's other organizations that are doing similarly good work that um, you know need our support, like American Gateways is really the, the longest legal services um, provider in, in Austin of immigration legal services um, in the Equal Justice Center. Bill, Bill Beardall is going to speak um, from that group. Grassroots leadership is amazing. You know, they've been doing a lot of excellent work out at Hutto. So I'm leaving out so many organizations, and this is not meant to be a, a, a list of all of them. But um, yes, Raises has all this money, and now they have the job of figuring out what to do with it. And I think they're going to do good work with it. And um, I think we can focus on other organizations too at this point. Perfect. Thanks yeah. so much. And mm -hmm. I can I just interject? Actually, we got a question about this because I, I reported on Raises, like, a little while ago when they first started getting a ton of money. Um, like, I, I think it's helpful to explain that, like, bond payments, since DHS is basically the jailer, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, since DHS is basically the jailer, in order to get people out and bond them out, you have to give money to DHS. I don't think races would choose. I don't want to speak for them, but I don't think, like, they choose... They, they don't have the opportunity to kind of choose who gets the bond payment, you know what I'm saying? So um, I think you're talking about a Washington Post headline that I, I, I got a lot of questions about because I had written about raises. So um, I think it's just a, a little bit of a misunderstanding. Um, yeah, I just wanted to clear that up because a yeah. lot of people emailed me about that, like that group you talked about there, giving money to DHS. But I think it's just like that's the, the way the system works. Um, and so I think that was a good time to switch gears. Um, we're going to talk about health care um, and access to health care and how that has changed um, under mass deportations in Texas. Um, thank you, Kate, so much for your time. I really appreciate Thanks it. For and good me. luck with everything. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to invite up Maria Hernandez. Uh, she works for Vela. Um, it's a group here in Austin. She's the founder and director. She helps families um, who have, well, primarily parents who have children with disabilities, and um, the immigrant community is a big part of her client base. Um, actually, why don't I have you, Maria, like you more did formally? A beautiful job. Yeah, yeah, tell me more about what you do, uh, yeah, who your so, client base is, and what your services are. Sure, sure. So, uh, Maria Hernandez, mucho gusto, so good to be here. Uh, and I'm with Vela. We're a nonprofit here in Austin that serves families that have children with disabilities. Uh, but like Ashley said, our main focus is really on supporting the parent uh, to make sure that they have the knowledge and the resources and community to create the best life for their child. And a lot of that is making sure they can access health care. Yeah. And what is the makeup of your claim base? Is it... Um we had talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. So we have 60 to 70% of families are immigrant families of mixed status. So mom or dad are undocumented, but the child is U.S. born. Yeah, and let's talk about historically what barriers are in front of families of mixed status or undocumented families when they're seeking access to health care and even including things that they, they desperately need if like someone's uh, disabled. Yeah, so I think one of the huge misconceptions is we think... Um, in general, that undocumented families are accessing services, but really the only person 
that is able to access services is that citizen child. So from our experience, what we've seen is um, the families that we serve that have mixed status, that child, whether or not they have a disability uh, and are low income, they're eligible for Medicaid or CHIP, right? And so that's our low income healthcare programs that support families to be able to see a pediatrician, to be able to get speech therapy or physical therapy, uh, to be able to see a specialist like a neurologist. And so really basic needs to be able to live a thriving life as a child with a disability. And that's all legally entitled yeah. you, uh, to that family. Are you seeing more, are you seeing a different kind of barrier lately? Yeah. Yeah. So in the last, uh, I would say, three months, and really, you know, I think in Texas we have that, sadly, this unique experience of having seen changes post-SB4, post-Trump, uh, where we see this ripple effect that starts where families start to pull back on services, not necessarily because a policy has yet changed that affects their access to health care or other supports like food stamps or housing vouchers, but just the fear of, hmm, I'm, I'm hearing that there's extra paperwork. I'm hearing that my renewal may not um, be accepted. And so out of fear of that, out of paralysis of it, I'm just not going to renew. And in the last two months, uh, we've seen a bigger change. There's a uh, potential policy change that's on the horizon. There's a leak draft around something called uh, the public charge test. And that's something that for decades has been part of our immigration policy that has allowed people to deny, uh, the U.S. to deny entry or deny permanent legal status to a resident that we deem is going to be a public charge to society. So rely too heavily on cash assistance, basically. And that's existed, um, but now the Trump administration wants to expand the definition of a public charge test to include uh, Medicaid and CHIP. And so that would mean that a US-born child that's legally entitled to health care, if they access that, uh, their parent could be permanently banned from legalizing their status. Are you already seeing families react to the, these proposed changes? We are, uh, because it was a leak draft in May, and the leak draft said it would be approved by the end of this month. And so uh, there is a lot of fear around, if I can't access health care, then what does that mean? Um, or maybe I continue to access health care and forego my safety um, and put myself at further risk for deportation. And so parents are either in that paralysis of, the pediatrician told me to see a neurologist, but that means new paperwork, so we're not going to do that. Or um, I'm just opting out completely from services. And just as a reminder to access Medicaid, you have to make less than $21,000 a year for a family of four. Um, so there's not extra money around to figure out how to do private pay for services that Medicaid wouldn't cover if you opt out. Yeah, what is that conversation like when someone turns to you and says, I know my kid needs this, I want them to have this care, but I'm really scared, what should I do? Like, how do you walk someone? And that's a legit fear as well. It's a really legitimate fear. Yeah. I mean, how, how does that conversation go? Yeah, it's an impossible conversation for us as service providers because the number one thing you want to do is ensure safety and encourage families to do what's best for their child, which is very much to seek services um, that their child is legally entitled to. And so we just we have very open conversations, and we make sure that the providers that they're accessing are uh, folks that are also involved in this conversation so that, 
from a leadership standpoint in that healthcare facility, they're aware um, and could take action in order to support families that maybe are at risk. Yeah, and for the families that you help, um, in particular, their their children have disabilities. I mean, what is the toll of foregoing, even momentarily, even for like a year while you're scared, foregoing services? Yeah, the toll is detrimental to the child because it means you stop accessing the thing that's helping you thrive. But the piece that we forget about is what the toll is on the parent that has chosen to do that. Um, so the toxic stress for the family that's, you know, literally did everything possible to be in a position where they could provide this for their child um, is now saying, I am now have to be okay with having made that choice. Um, so stopping to see even a pediatrician, so say they don't have a disability, but stopping, you know, if you don't have Medicaid, you can't see a pediatrician, you can't get your vaccinations. What does that mean for school enrollment? What does it mean for just participation in the community? Um, so I know for Texas, we're looking at 1.8 million children um, who have one parent that's undocumented, so they would be affected. And from a disability standpoint, that's about 300,000 children in Texas that would be affected um, by this policy. Yeah, and you know, we had talked about this before, which is for the public health community, especially under the Obama administration, there was a long slog to get these families out of the shadows mm -hmm. and seeking services. Yeah. And it's like a long journey of trust. And like, what do you feel like just the past year has made a dent in those years of work? You know, it's kind of a mixed feeling where um, as providers, we, we get defeated in the sense of exactly that. Like, oh, do we encourage people to hide? That makes absolutely no sense. It undoes all the work. Uh, but having conversations with the families and their, which is also heartbreaking, is their resilience is so deep that they are, and they fought so hard to give this opportunity f to their child that they are not stepping back into the shadow. They're stepping further into the light and saying, let's organize, let's ask questions, let's advocate. And so it's an opportunity to, for us, as always, to learn from the families. Yeah. And what are you hearing from the families in terms of the plans they're making? I mean, do they see this as what Kate said, like a blip on the radar? Like, should I just wait it out for now? Or are they planning, are they making plan A and plan B for like longer term? Like, this is my life now. Yeah. I think one of the hard things, especially if you're a parent of a child with a disability, is it's really hard to look at the horizon. So often you're just like head down getting through this week. And so I know for a lot of our families, the furthest out that they can plan is what decision will I make when I get renewal paperwork for Medicaid? Um, and that potentially will happen in three months. And so what will be, my, what will be our choice as a family of what to do in that moment? Um, but much further out than that, I don't think they're even quite able to process. I know with us before, we did a lot of organizing with our families of these are know your rights and this is what, what you can do. And and that they kind of implemented a lot of that. And so I think now uh, we're charged with doing something similar around this. Yeah. And I guess my last question to you is, um, has this changed? The fear of deportation is not new in Texas. Right. Um, but it just feels a little more like visible right now. Mm -hmm. um, has that changed how you talk to parents, um, at least for the time being, about how they access services, what they should seek, where they should seek it? 
It does. I think it just opens up the conversation more. And in some ways, um, I think it's given us permission to be more honest. And I think that's created an even safer space for families um, to say, I know I can walk into Vela. It's a welcoming space where I don't have to hide this component that's really an underlying factor in all the decisions that we make as a family. Um, and now we're trying to encourage providers to figure out how to do the same. Um, so a family going to see a neurologist or going to see a therapist for speech therapy or whatnot, there can also be a container for that, for families to say, there's a reason I'm not showing up. You know, it's not that I'm a bad parent or that we don't want this. It's just it's a, it, it has a bigger ripple effect that um, is unseen. Yeah. Well, um, I, yeah, now's a perfect time to open up to questions, comments, stories. If anyone has a question for Maria... Ooh, of course, on the other side. You got this, Claire. <laughs> She's doing it in heels, folks. It's very, I know. They're big steps, Very impressive. Too. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Um, so I have a question. So now that uh, these new policies are being implemented, do you see, like, in the families that you help, a shift in more of relying on like community clinics and things like that as opposed to reapplying for like Medicaid for CHIP for the fear that you had mentioned earlier? Yeah, it's a great question. So th since the policy has not been implemented yet, and I really encourage everyone that's interested in so public charge and protecting immigrant families is a great group to follow to stay abreast with changes that are uh, on the horizon. But the word is out a little bit, right? So they're making decisions. Um, so a lot of the community clinics are also Medicaid only, you know. So I think what, what we're going to be tasked with as a community is figuring out what is the other option. If it's not Medicaid, um, then is it opening up more sliding fee scale models, and what does that look like? Um, and how do families then have extra resources to access that? Because they'll miss, they'll have to figure out where to get that money from. So not yet, but I think if something like this were to happen, it's going to change a lot of the models of how we provide health care in Austin. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Another question? Oh. All right. Oh, down here. <laughs> Clear. Right here. <laughs> so I guess as a follow-up to that, is there um, potentially a snowball effect of, because they're not getting care right now, will they be accessing emergency rooms, and is there a financial, a big, bigger financial cost there? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, whenever we hear conversations about Oh, this is a good model because people are relying on Medicaid. We don't know what the expense looks like to rely on emergency room care for serve and and emergency rooms typically don't have a specialist, right? They they're primary care providers, maybe, but not uh, the neurologist that you would see as a follow up or your physical therapist. And so I think we are going to see families start to dip more into that uh, and not be not be able to pay for those services. Um, because there won't be an alternative. Um, and it's interesting with, li I think Kate mentioned it, there's all these policies that are happening very loudly and there's some that are happening really quietly. Um, and I think this one tied to healthcare and children is um, 
something that will task big folks in healthcare to think about re-envisioning a model um, if, because the emergency room is just not an option for wellness and care, right? To thrive, yeah. Any more questions? Here we go. <clears throat> Hi, thank you so much for sharing about your experiences and your knowledge. Um, so a lot of this conversation was around healthcare, mm -hmm. and I'm curious to know how you've seen, if at all, changes in how families are interacting with schools and with um, the education system in general. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because there will be a little overlap with healthcare in schools because a lot of times schools bill Medicaid for some services, so that we'll see a little bit of a Venn diagram there. Um, but I think that... The biggest, the two biggest people in families' lives are typically healthcare and your school provider. So it'll be very interesting to see. I think districts will be tasked with how to get ahead of a conversation to be able to say, "This is happening, and we are welcoming, and this is a safe space." Um, because I think really quickly families will just opt to generalize that this is the feeling across all providers. Um, so I think school providers, um, social service providers, and healthcare providers will be tasked with how to reframe the conversation and get ahead of that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how districts are able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw one back there. There we go. Oh, oh over here too. Um, I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more on mental health care, especially as trauma comes into the conversation. Yeah. And just because, in general, that's such a uh, strapped resource in Texas. Exactly. Um, yeah, so mental health services, if we look at, it's almost impossible to find a mental health provider if you have Medicaid, right? Um, and so thinking about what the impact will be if we remove the one little tiny resource that we have to, for families to access that uh, will mean that others will have to step into the space that are not in the space currently to be able to provide not just for the child, um, because if, if you're a child that now this decision is being made because of you, um, in a sense, if you have a disability, that's going to be a hard conversation to manage as a family. Um, and it'll be interesting, and one thing I haven't seen yet is it'll be interesting to see how groups get together to hold space, a mental health conversation space, in addition to the legal space, around having conversations with families about having to either opt out of something that is the entire reason why they are here, um, and I'm, I'm not quite sure who's going to fill that space, but I think really quickly, it's the longer we wait, the bigger the chasm grows, or however you say that, around not addressing the toxic stress uh, for both child and parent. Yeah. I think that's a... Did yes, hello. Yeah. First off, uh, thank you for coming out and sharing this uh, conversation with us. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Um, a good part of my question was already addressed by somebody else who had brought up the overlap that your practice is going to have with education. Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm just more generally concerned with something that you've been kind of like talking at and hinting at like pretty much throughout uh, 
the conversation, which is that there seems to be a general distrust amongst um, fairly new immigrant families, especially of Hispanic or Latino sort of background. Mm -hmm. And the new presidency, the new administration, has certainly uh, spiked in and added all sorts of uh, fear to this. Mm-hmm. I guess my question now, and to round off, is there a, are you aware of any uh, current larger dialogue or attempt at a uniform sort of communication with the Hispanic communities across not just our state, but maybe across uh, the Southwest as far as communicating to them more generally um, what sort of organizations aren't out to clip their wings, that they're still here to help, that they're not under the sway of the administration? Because I know that paranoia is very real amongst Mm -hmm. all the families. Sure, yeah. Um, I don't know at a in the Southwest region. Um, I know that there are a lot of folks in Austin and many of them are here tonight that are wanting to very much so address that because it is the underlying, I mean, we all make decisions, so many of us make decisions out of fear, if not necessarily policies or rules yet. Um, but I do think that that is the conversation that needs to happen. Whether or not this policy happens that I've mentioned with public charge, the repercussions of, of it are there already because the word is out. And so families, um, maybe it won't happen this month, but maybe it'll happen next month. And so the decision to withdraw or access and lose the ability to legalize my status is dangling. Um, so I think as community members and as larger entities, whether we're districts or agencies, we have to start having this as part of the conversation. I think so often it's like, ooh, let's do that quietly out of respect for the person, but the person is probably in a space that they're wanting to have a space to be allowed to say something um, and that that's included in whatever service that they're receiving. So I think it, it, it is very much like you said, it is the underlying element of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have time for another one. Does anyone have a question? Hi, I just wanted to comment. Hi, Maria, it's hey, Leonor. Leonor. Hello. <laughs> My name is Leonor Vargas. I'm from the Parent Engagement Support Office in the school district. And I just wanted to comment that as a district, we have on our website a policy that states how we welcome all families. Mm. And also as an educational institution, we don't ask for individuals' immigration status when they enroll their students in our schools. And we, as social workers and counselors, also have individual conversations like you're talking about, yeah. Maria. It is a very difficult situation for a lot of our families who are living in fear, like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think as a district, we're being, trying to be mindful and intentional with our partners like yourself and other partners. Mm-hmm. And other Consulado de Mexico is here as well, is how do we support our families in the manner that they want to be supported, you know, when they're ready to seek help. But please know that as a district, we are working with the Consulado de Mexico yeah. and other nonprofits to see how we can approach this, you know, with a lot of compassion mm-hmm. and also, you know, being mindful of what the needs are and the limitations that we're working with. But um, everyone is welcome to access mental health services at, you know, in our school districts that, for students that are enrolled in our district, or we will work with other families. And as, you know, as administrator for the Parent Engagement Support Office, I welcome anyone to get in dialogue with us you know, and have a conversation how, how we as a district can be more responsive or enhance our responsive efforts. Yeah. So thank you. I want to piggyback from what you said, Leonard, because it goes back to your question. I think we'll, 
because the districts are sort of the uh, sanctuary space and can provide mental health services and have been doing some therapy, you know, they provide special ed supports. I think what we're going to see is potentially a growth in that relationship or investment in those services and, and tasking districts of, hey, we can't get this in the community clinic anymore, but is there a way for us to develop a program in-house on our campus? And so ideally, in some, the, a little silver lining of this is that deepening of relationship with our school campuses. Yeah. All right. Everyone's had? Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Maria. Thank you. Thank you so much. much. Okay, so now I'm going to cede my ground to Joy Diaz. She uh, is a reporter at the Texas Standard. If you ever tune into KUT in the afternoon, you will hear her a lot. She's great. Um, And uh, she will be speaking with Myra Huerta from the Workers' Defense uh, Project. And Bill Beardall, there you are, from the Equal Justice Center. Thanks so much. Okay, so be be a little patient with me. This is a little complicated. I have something in my ears, something in my hands. Bill and Maida, welcome. So good to have you here. Good to be here. So good to see you all here. Thank you. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about business and industry, and Maida and Bill, I have a question for you, and it's a fill-in-the-blank question. Okay, you ready? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So, unauthorized immigrants are, fill-in-the-blank, to every sector of the economy of Texas, including business and industry. What is the adjective that you would pick? I would say they are critical. They're critical? What would you say, Bill? I would say they are integral Mm -hmm. in addition to being critical. I would say I need a dictionary. (laughs) So what do you mean by that? Well, um, at Workers' Defense Project, we focus a lot on the construction industry. And that's not just by chance. Um, It is one of the biggest industries in our state. I mean, something to the tune of $70 billion? Yes. Just uh, in Texas. Just in Texas. And we know, we know the reasons why um, construction builders are drawn to our state. Uh, we have a large undocumented population. About 50% of our construction workers are undocumented. About how many? 50%. About half? About half. One in every two? Probably a little bit more than half. And if you know that, and if I know that, that means to me that people in authority know that. Is that a fair assumption? Definitely, and we have also published many studies that show that. (laughs) So when we are talking about an economy where these unauthorized workers are perhaps critical, perhaps integral, perhaps essential, How do we manage to have such a large workforce um, producing money for the state uh, without the state knowing? Well, I don't think the state doesn't know. I think everybody knows. This is the big secret that everybody knows. Um, When I say they are integral to our economy, what I mean is every one of us, everyone in this room benefits pretty much daily 
from the labor of undocumented immigrants. I, I think I need to stop you. I do not have, I clean my house by myself. I cook my meals by myself. Do you ever eat in a restaurant? Okay, when you eat in a restaurant, the people who are washing your dishes or um, uh, cooking the food, as often as not, are undocumented immigrants. Um, the, um, it, and I'm not just but let's say, let's pretend I don't eat at a restaurant. Do you drive on the highways? Almost every highway in Texas has been built in part mm -hmm. with the labor of undocumented immigrants. Let's say I don't drive in the highways. <laughs> you shop in any big box stores? Okay, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Almost all the big box stores in Austin and across much of the country are cleaned overnight, every night, by crews of undocumented immigrants. If you work, if you have, live in a home or a office building that's been built uh, uh, in the last 25 years or so, you're in almost certainly- In the last 25 you know, years? To put a number on it, you're almost certainly to have been the beneficiary of undocumented immigrants, um, and on and on. I mean, Let's say I don't <clears throat> shop. Let's just, I'm a recluse. Right. Well, maybe if you're a recluse living in a cave, but that's the only person. And, and the, the point is, and the, and, I, and the point we're both making here, is that, uh, th that undocumented immigrants are a seamless and integral part of almost every economic activity in the state, and it would come to a screeching halt without their involvement. So everybody knows this, and we're living with this um, contradiction where we all benefit from a, um, a, a workforce that has been relegated to a kind of a second-class status and a high level of insecurity and often illegally low wages and working conditions, uh, and yet we don't really have the will to go ahead and bring those people into the mainstream of, our, uh, of the benefits that our society provides and that they have earned through their hard work. So I like a word that you used, and it's the word contradiction. One interesting contradiction that I learned about in reporting about immigration issues is the use of what is called um, an ITIN number. It's not I-10, it's I-T-I-N, ITIN number, Individual Taxpayer Identification Number. So who created these numbers? Do we know? Well, the I-10 is a a procedure created by the Congress in legislation and by the Internal Revenue Service to enable people who are not U.S. citizens to pay income taxes. So this clearly is not a secret. No, it's not a secret. Okay. I, it, and, and let me, let me, let me uh, elaborate, because it's not just the I-10. Uh, in fact, even more than that, undocumented immigrants are paying taxes paying taxes that support Medicare and Social Security and unemployment insurance and all the other things that the state and federal government so spend on. So don't lose on. your thought. I just want to throw two numbers in there. About 1.6 unauthorized workers in the state of Texas, right? Sure. About 4.5 million unauthorized workers in the country, many of those we can say from Texas, pay taxes in the year 2016. 4.5, four and a half million people pay taxes through these numbers, but that's not the only way to pay taxes. 
Right. No, yeah, um, undocumented immigrants also pay property taxes. You know, it might be hard to believe, but... They the people, own property. They own property, and um, there's a lot of loopholes to owning property that families, their resilience has shown that they are here in this country and they want to provide a home for their family, and they find a way to do that. And you had an interesting number, like real dollars. Yes, so it's about... Let me see, I have it here somewhere. Um... So it's about $1.6 billion in property and sales taxes that is paid by undocumented folks just here in Texas. So you're not kidding when you guys use words like critical or integral, um, because when we talk about money, money speaks, and it speaks very loudly. The state of Texas really has a steady revenue from the unauthorized labor force in the form of homes, in the form of cars in the form of phones. Um, it's it's everywhere. Milk. Yeah, yeah, even the income tax, um, although um, a worker might be using an I-10 or maybe uh, somebody else's social security, you're still paying income tax and you're paying into uh, social security that you will never be able to access. So Bill has an interesting uh, phrase that he uses and it, the phrase is something like more for less right bill like they pay more they get less how can you explain that a little bit well i guess that the idea is that undocumented immigrants they do pay taxes as mitra has been talking about property taxes sales taxes even income taxes through uh, uh, uh payroll taxes and withholding taxes that are reported in to the government and support the rest of us, but they're not eligible, as Myra said, for unemployment insurance and Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and the and, and most of the other public benefits that um, uh, we get as a result of paying taxes. So they're not getting drawing down very much of what they're paying into to support. So if my grandmother gets, a, by the way, my grandmother has passed, but. Hypothetically, if my grandmother gets a Social Security check, is part of those dollars money that has been put into the pot by unauthorized immigrants? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on to something else. The uh, state of Texas unemployment right now is at 4.1%, which virtually means that every person has a job. Um, if that means that every person has a job, are we talking about every person, including unauthorized workers? Um, yeah, so I actually have an old, um, this is an old statistic, which might be a little bit higher today, but um, back in 2010, um, according to a Pew Hispanic uh, Research Center, um, about 9% of the Texas workforce um, was made up by undocumented workers, which was actually a larger portion of what their population was at the time. And so this means that they are just working more than someone who is not, who is, who is actually documented. Okay. Let's um, talk a little bit about your jobs. Um, Maida, would you like to talk about the Workers' Defense Project? What do you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So the Workers' Defense Project, we're a nonprofit that started here in Austin. Uh, we now have offices in Dallas and Houston as well. And what we're basically doing is organizing low-income workers, uh, mostly who are undocumented and who work in the construction industry, to take back the power that belongs to them. And what about you, Bill? What do you do? 
Well, the Equal Justice Center is a nonprofit law firm that has offices in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, and we help low-wage workers enforce their employment rights, particularly recover unpaid wages. Uh, we represent citizens, authorized immigrants, and a very large share of undocumented immigrants, since those are the people who are most likely to not get paid. As an adjunct to that, we have found that it was, it's necessary to have a couple of uh, immigration lawyers on staff who help a lot of our clients uh, process applications for DACA, like Valeria talked about, uh, as well as just do a screen on all of our cl uh, immigrant clients to see if there isn't some form of immigration relief for which they may be eligible and didn't know about or that we can help them secure. But we've recovered about $13 million in unpaid wages over the last 10 or 12 years, running about a million dollars a year. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, wage theft and other violations of employment rights that we deal with. So how, you know, the, the idea for having this conversation is to talk about what's happening now. Um, how has your job, how has your job changed in the last two years, say? Um, it, well, when I first started at Workers' Defense, I did a lot of, uh, like, focusing on labor issues, as uh, the Equal Justice does. Um, I, I never thought that I would be doing deportation defense work, and here I am. Um, the immigration uh, issues have just really taken over, and we have realized that doing labor organizing and immigration is just, it goes hand in hand, and we need to do it together. Explain how it goes hand in hand, because I believe that when it's not your reality, how do you put together, uh, uh, you know, work like labor laws with immigration laws? It's like, how do you marry them? Yeah, we have a lot of uh, the workers that come to us that are undocumented construction workers, and they have really, they have had really bad things happen to them where we've had employers who have threatened to kill our workers. They have ha threatened to what? To kill. To kill? Yes. They have, I've had cases where like one of their employers actually um, like had a rifle and loaded the rifle right in front of them and was like, if you tell someone, you know what's going to happen to you. And they, of course, were scared. So as a scare tactic for I will not comply with labor laws, the scare tactic is I will kill you if you speak I up. I will kill you. I will call immigration. I'll call the police on you. And if you're an undocumented worker who's, who's just trying to get paid, you kind of weigh your options. Do I recover two weeks' worth of pay or do I risk my family? Uh, do I risk deportation? Do I risk um, be getting the police called on me? That's one way your job has changed. What about you, Bill? Well, let me preface this by saying the great thing about employment law is that <clears throat> workers can take the law into their own hands and enforce their rights themselves. They don't have to depend on a prosecutor or a mm -hmm. federal agency or someone else to do it. With the help of a lawyer, they can go hold that employer accountable uh, for their unpaid wages, and that's true as true for undocumented workers as it is for U.S. citizens. Now, we have worked very hard over the last 10, 15 years to build up a case law uh, and, and a set of judicial precedents that um, declare that in the courts, in employment cases, 
undocumented workers are to be treated just like U.S. citizens. In fact, no questions are even allowed to be asked about their immigration status. Mm. And that is an important opening, normalizing the participation of undocumented workers in our integral economy. Lately, you ask how it has changed, lately, that's a hard thing for many undocumented workers to believe, is mm. that the same government that wants to, uh, one part of which wants to deport them, the judiciary wants to not ask any questions except, did you get paid properly or did you not? That's part of our job, is to strengthen the resolve and the confidence in that part of our system among undocumented immigrants. Uh, through word of mouth, we've gotten that word out pretty well, and we have lots of undocumented workers come in every day seeking our help and getting our help recovering unpaid wages. Lately, that's become a, a harder thing. A lot of people have moved back into the shadows because with all of the news about hardline immigration enforcement and, uh, and, and deportation that occurred to people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, it's a little harder for a lot of workers to trust that the system will enforce their employment rights. It's made our job a lot harder, though I will tell you there are plenty of workers who still understand this point and are trying to share that with their, uh, their fellow uh, working people. I guess it goes back to that word that we, we started the conversation with, contradiction, right? I mean, on the one hand, you are seeing that the law protects you. On the other hand, the law is persecuting you. So it's a very interesting uh, contradiction right there. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is uh, deportations. So the state of Texas is super interesting, especially when I travel and I talk to people. Um, you know, when I tell them that the construction industry is made up of um, unauthorized workers, they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, people with no papers. And what do you mean? And well, that's what I mean. But aren't deportations on the rise? They are, but it's, it's a contradiction. It's really difficult to explain. So our state... Um, financially um, gets a big benefit from the unauthorized force, and we do see a ramp up in deportations. Are we seeing them in the labor force in Texas? I, at Workers' Defense, we have uh, recently heard of, um, I guess, like mini-raids at construction sites. Mini-raids. Yeah, and where it's um, a group of maybe three or four workers um, that get the police called on them for construction noise. Because, you know, when, you, when you're working construction, your tools will make a little noise. Can you be quieter when you're building <laughs> my house? Basically, um, which then just it escalated to a bigger situation where the police were collaborating with immigration. And the three workers that were there just, you know, doing their, doing their job, renovating an apartment, uh, were then put into deportation proceedings that day. And I think that story... Um, impacted them personally, but if half of the force is unauthorized, we do not see 10 or 12 trucks of ice pull onto a construction site, or do we? I think this plays into one of, another of those contradictions. <clears throat> 
on the one hand, workplace raids are a good place to do, from ICE's point of view, a showplace scare tactic raid because there are a lot of people all gathered in one place. But they are very unpopular with the business community. Mm -hmm. And you don't see the business community, you don't see big business promoting these hardline immigration enforcement policies. Uh, you see them quietly and trying invisibly to support a, a, a comprehensive immigration reform that uh, in, enables those workers to incorporate more seamlessly into our economy. Why? Well, in a few cases, maybe they want the undocumented workers in order to be able to exploit them. But in most cases, business people want the undocumented workers because they're among the hardest working, most work ethic driven, most stable and, and ambitious employees they have. And they recognize that. Picking up on something Kate Lincoln Goldfinch said, if we're looking to she the future... She has a hard name, doesn't she? Yeah, if we're taking the long view, we have to cultivate that. We have to bring those business people out and their testimonies out, along with law enforcement and all the other people you hear from, because most Americans recognize that we, are, we do have... Uh, undocumented workers as an integral part of our economy, and we need to move to incorporate them. If I can put out one poll number, a, re a poll just in the last two weeks showed that the American people, if asked, should we have a program that allows undocumented immigrants to legalize their status if they pass a background check and are vetted, 80% of Americans said, yes, we should have such a program. Well, even Breitbart News calls the economy of Texas an economy that has um, imported consumers, right? So there's, there's an understanding of the importance of the unauthorized um, immigrant force. I want to touch on a point that both of you um, have made to me. What can we do if the state of Texas depends so heavily on this money, if it's real money, if it's billions and billions of dollars, um, what can we do to improve the situation for workers and for the general population? Well, I would say um, if an undocumented worker is here, they're here to work, they're here for a better future, um, you know, that myth of here to leech off our social services, that's not true. So I would say what we need to do is pass a fair immigration reform where they can actually have a sense of safety here and the work, the work ethic will still be there. Their ambition will still be there. They will just have an actual future to be working towards. Bill? Well, at the federal level, we will need, as Mitra said, comprehensive immigration reform. This is a project we've worked on for 20 years. The templates are there. The laws that have been created to carry out in compromise uh, uh, legislation negotiated to carry out comprehensive immigration reform is there. As Kate said, we're in a period where we're taking a step backward. Progress always happens through a two steps forward one step backward process. Our job right now is to keep the backward step we're taking, unfortunately, limit that to just one step. And that way, when we're ready and we have mobilized to take the two steps forward, we'll actually move farther uh, forward than we were before we started. We have to undertake that task right now of limiting this backward step as much as we can. 
Uh, when that happens, the state of Texas will, in addition to what the federal government can do, the state of Texas will uh, repeal laws like Senate Bill 4, which were designed to have an intimidating, harassing effect on undocumented immigrants, and begin to en enact positive uh, uh, laws like allowing uh, undocumented immigrants to uh, uh, obtain driver's licenses and the other uh, necessities of a normal uh, participation in our life. I think that's a great point to stop and to allow the audience to give us questions or stories. Um, if you have a question or if you have a comment, please raise your hand and a microphone will come to you sooner or later. Hi, good evening. I'm really glad to be listening to what both of you are saying. And I'd like to ask your educated opinions about the people who have temporary protective status for a short time still, and DACA. Who knows what's going to happen with DACA? But I've been pondering what kind of an effect it would have on our economy if both of those programs really and truly ended with no recourse. And suddenly there are millions of people who had work permission one day and don't have it another. Most of them will probably not go home, but some of them will. And they're employed now. Their employers are looking for solutions to the situation already. We'll have a larger population of undocumented what do you two think will happen to the Texas economy, at the very least? Thank you. Any, either I th one? I think it will, my, my sense is that it will have a small-ish effect on the Texas economy. It will have a larger effect on certain employers and certain industries. But I think, as your question indicated, what's going to happen is most of those folks are going to disappear into the invisible sea of undocumented people. They will have a harder time supporting themselves. That will undermine stability in our society, make them more exploitable. But they're here. They're, they've built lives here. They have families here. Um, they're not really in a position at all to go somewhere else. And so I think that will be uh, the, the temporary untoward effect that has. Anybody else? Yes. I see some hands over here, like third row maybe. My question's for Maida. Um, so I appreciate so much Workers' Defense Project and the work that they've led to protect a large population of our community here in Austin. Um, and so as a resident um, here in Austin, is there anything I can do beyond like attending a, uh, a rally and bringing my sign and bringing my Abolish, tea, abolish Ice t-shirt? Um, like I heard something about like sick paid something and and y'all and y'all winning that and like is there anything I could do like show up at City Hall like are there campaigns? I think we get you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for your. Is there anything she can do? There, we always have some fight. We're fighting, so there's definitely always something that you can do. Um, I think one thing that you could do is just be vigilant. What is happening at City Hall? What's happening at Travis County? What's being built? I mean, if, if you step outside today, you're going to see a crane in the sky. How many cranes? Sometimes I, when I'm driving uh, down 35, I count all the cranes that I see. Be careful. That's very dangerous. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Um, Austin is booming. And I don't know if you guys were at the most recent city hall meeting, but um, there was a 
million dollar bond, well, that's $250 million of money that might be spent on building, building stuff in our, in our city. Those people that are going to be building this are probably undocumented. And, they're, and we want them to have fair pay. We want them to have safety uh, protections and everything, everything that they deserve when they are putting a roof over our head, when they're building our skyscrapers, our houses, our, um, our schools. So pay attention to what's being built. And when something is being built, go <laughs> find workers' defense and see what we're doing about it because we're probably doing something. <laughs> Anybody else? Over here. Oh, okay. Hi. Hi, uh, my name is Maria Jose. So mine's kind of a question, kind of statement. Um, so you guys, well, you all talk about, um, including Kay and Bill mentioned how the American public is looking out, and especially these immigration issues, are there's a lot of reactions. Um, but my question is, why are we, of course, there's reaction, but why are we in this state? You know, like if... So many people are reacting to it. Why is it that we have to be in this place of where we have to react? Not enough people vote. A lot of those people who feel that way and have those opinions aren't voting or they aren't voting for, uh, on that issue. And I think the one thing, if there's one thing people in this room can do that will make a difference is vote. And the second thing you can do that makes a difference is get other people to vote. Right now, that's how the right wing got in power. They didn't stage a coup. Uh, they didn't seize power. They got themselves voted in by uh, showing up at the polls in disproportionate numbers and getting themselves and getting their candidates elected. That's how we, that's our biggest and best tool to fight back. And I think we're, uh, I think a lot of people are mobilizing to do that. And between now and November, you will never have a better opportunity, opportunity to affect history than by, uh, you will by voting and getting other people to vote and defying the, uh, the usual low turnout in an off-year election and creating that wave that is the one thing that can save us. And if you have a question in Spanish, we can also accommodate that. I don't know if you know that, pero si tiene preguntas en español, también las puede hacer cuando guste. Um, levante su mano y llegamos hasta usted. Anybody else? Oh, we have one over here, one over here. Thank you. Um, just have a question. I remember talking with a couple of friends at work before. We talked about immigration and undocumented uh, and workers. So I guess one of the questions came up was that uh, because they're undocumented, um, let's say of the workforce, if 50% of them get deported, would that you know, increase the wages for those that do stay? So mm. it's an economic you know, argument, but is there, what's the rebuttal against, against uh, that statement? Mm. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were saying that big businesses don't, don't want you know, they want this to remain a secret. They don't want these workers to get deported. Um, if 50% of the construction workforce was deported tomorrow, nothing would be built. And I don't think that we can expect the 50% that is left to do twice 
the work uh, because construction is already an extremely heavy uh, industry to work in. So, um, yeah, I'd, I don't think that would happen. Can, can I give two responses? One is 50% are not going to get deported. It would just, the, the country would collapse uh, in a way that would be unacceptable. The more, the, the, but, but your question is well taken. Um, the more important way and uh, more humane and effective way to push wages up is to enforce the rights of everybody. But the so rights of in existing laws. Yeah, even the rights under existing laws, if we, if we can enforce the rights, especially of undocumented workers, then the predatory employers who have an incentive to prefer them in order to exploit them, that incentive will be taken away. The race to the bottom that is created by uh, unscrupulous employers being able to underpay undocumented workers with impunity, that race to the bottom and downward pressure on wages will be taken away. And the legitimate businesses who do try to treat their workers fairly and pay them properly, they'll be in a better position to do so. They won't be getting underbid by unscrupulous employers who are exploiting undocumented workers and thereby gaining a competitive advantage. Uh, that kind of vigorous enforcement of the rights, the employment rights of all workers is our best uh, way of boosting wages and working conditions for everybody, citizens, authorized immigrants, and undocumented immigrants. Hmm. And we had, I think, one last question over here in the front. Yes? Um, I had a question. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll pass it. Oh, I'm I'll sorry. pass it after this. You know, the, the lights are definitely okay. blinding me. <laughs> I can hear you, though. I was on the river, so I'm pretty tan now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I had a question. I'm, I think the poll numbers have always shown that there's been great support for immigration reform, um, and there's, been, there's always been a lot of support in the business community. My suspicion and my distrust is that I find, um, I guess my, my basic question is I'm curious what immigration um, reform would ideally for you all, would, for your organizations would look like. Um, and my concern with this is that uh, with partnering with uh, businesses is that I find that, um, at least the last time it was seriously discussed, there's a, there's a willingness to almost create a second class of citizens by saying we're going to permit, uh, we would like worker permits that um, don't have a path for citizenship, or basically saying, okay, we, we want um, new classes of visas for workers, but we're going to gut family immigration in exchange for that, which mm -hmm. I don't think is acceptable. So you're talking about what right. would ideal immigration reform look like? Yeah, look, there are three components. Comprehensive immigration reform is called comprehensive in legislative parlance because it, it includes three uh, uh, prongs that have to go together. One is some sort of orderly, fair legalization program, path to citizenship for the current 11 or 12 million undocumented immigrants. The second component is some kind of way of fairly and in a more orderly and a generous way dealing with what's called the future flow of immigrants in legislative parlance. That is the people who are still gonna be coming to the United States and we're gonna need in order to fill jobs and, and be coming through the push and pull factors. Um, and the third is some kind of uh, border regulation and enforcement that's 
not open borders, but is not unfair and inhumane uh, and horrendous as the enforcement mechanism we have now. One point you made is very important. I don't think we should trust business to do immigration uh, reform for us because they have their own set of interests. And where that comes into play is uh, there are many businesses who would love to have legal workers, temporary foreign guest workers from abroad. That is, we represent a lot of temporary foreign guest workers who are exploited. It's almost like legalized trafficking. Mm -hmm. And if you left it to a lot of people in the business community, well, that's the kind of immigration reform they want. Uh, we have to have all of our citizenry, especially advocates for workers and for immigrant rights, in that room negotiating this out uh, in order to ensure that it doesn't come up, uh, doesn't end up being something that is just another form of exploitation uh, for uh, business people um, or, or employers uh, who, who would like to misuse uh, immigration legally, but misuse it. Well, we have an 80-year history of uh, guest worker programs, right? Right. Um, is that it? Oh, yes, you're right. I, I liked to where you're going with the following the money uh, part of all of this. It's an um, interesting, yeah, path. Yes, um, I'm, I'm seeing that, you know, that it's pretty obvious there's a false narrative going on of um, um, vilification of, of, the, of the poor, the lowly worker. I would like to see the money trail leading to the people who should also be vilified, those who are benefiting from all of this. Um, lower wage. If they didn't have the lower wages, they would have to pay more, so they would make fewer profits. Um, I would like to see them exposed as well. It is a very interesting concept. Thank you so much for your comment. And I will tell you what, I was very delighted with the presence of Maida and Bill here, so help me giving them a big round of applause. We have one more guest for you. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. We have one more guest. Carlos uh, Gonzalez Gutierrez is the Consul General of Mexico in Austin. And so in Texas, we have a number of consulates, and it's kind of like um, uh, being like the ambassador, I guess. So, <laughs> Carlos, welcome. Welcome to this forum. So we're going to talk a little bit about all the things that have changed. <laughs> Maybe not all the things that have changed. But one thing that has recently changed is that you have a new president in Mexico, Carlos. How, yes. yeah, how do you feel about that? Well, um, like uh, I'm sure many people in the, in the audience, I was surprised by the mandate that he received. Paul suggested that he was going to be around um, 48, 49 percent of the vote. Carlos, we could have told you not to trust the polls. <laughs> <laughs> Learn I, from the U.S. election. <laughs> <laughs> I personally thought that, although he, was, he had a very significant advantage, that the other candidates were going to narrow that gap. But instead of narrowing, in the last weeks, he was able to even make it w wider. And so he won by, uh, with 53% uh, of the vote, 
he won um, all the age brackets, the Mexican electorate. He won all education brackets. 65% of voters who, are, who were college educated in Mexico, 65% voted for him. He won um, all states. Out of 32 states, he won 31. With and the his name is Andres Manuel López Obrador. Exactly. Andres Manuel López Obrador is going to be our president-elect president once elect. the electoral court in Mexico ratifies his, um, his selection, and that will be pretty soon. So something that is interesting is that because we live in Texas, it's almost like U.S. politics are just as important in Mexican politics because we are like the child of those two countries. So, or that's the way I like to explain it. <laughs> um, so it is important that we follow the politics. What do you see with the election of AMLO, as many people like to call him for short, um, Andres Manuel López Obrador, with President Trump? Can we see some sort of uh, relationship when he sees into, uh, when uh, President Trump sees into the eyes of AMLO, is he going to see what he sees in the eyes of Putin? I don't know. <laughs> is there going to be, is there going to be a relationship? I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be a relationship. Um, um, Andres Manuel López Obrador has said that uh, he wants to develop a productive uh, relationship with the President of the United States. He already met uh, Mr. Pompeo, who is the uh, Secretary of State, as well as Mr. Kushner and uh, different officials from uh, Mr. Trump's cabinet. Um, it is in very interesting, uh, while he was uh, in campaign, uh, Lopez Obrador said, you should always be able to separate what a candidate says during the campaign and what he does once he becomes president. And mm -hmm. he was referring to, to Trump, mm -hmm. while Trump was in campaign and, he, and Lopez Obrador was also in campaign because he has been for several years. Um, I think he was mistaken in the case of the <laughs> President of the United States. I think that uh, uh, President Trump is doing many of the things that uh, he said he was going to do. Um, and those people who thought that we should distinguish the candidate from the president are now reevaluating that um, analysis. But it is interesting to apply. Uh, Mr. López Obrador analysis to he himself. I mean, yeah, he's, he's now the president-elect. He's now the president-elect. He's uh, famous for being very pragmatic. His first signs uh, after winning the election, once the, the first messages that he sent was that uh, he was going to be uh, fiscal orthodox, that he was not going to raise taxes, that he was not going to raise debt for Mexico, that he wanted to um, make sure that the, the economy continues working without a, a fiscal deficit. In other words, trying to, to calm the markets. And what we have seen is that the peso 
has recovered much of its value vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. And that matters because immigration also is tied to uh, economic forces. But another thing that Lopez Obrador said during his acceptance speech was, I am going to be the president of all, and he included immigrants in that conversation. So that leads me to now and here. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, you are very familiar with deportations because your offices um, and your officers um, go into the jails and, and uh, learn firsthand what's happening. So tell us what they tell you. What is happening? What are they seeing? How are things changing? Well, like um, Bill and, and, and Kate and uh, Marie and all the speakers that preceded me, I think that it's pretty clear that there's anxiety and fear among the immigrant communities in Texas. Um, I have had a chance to interview directly people who are in the ICE detention center in downtown Austin. And it is uh, pretty shocking and sometimes depressing to realize what um, uh, an impact the change in, in, the, in the framework of the whole debate has on particular and specific families mm. behind each deportation. Um, there is a, a, a devastating family behind mm. and a community that uh, starts thinking what's going to happen next. Um, a couple of weeks ago on... on on June 27th, the day that Mexico beat South Korea in the World Cup. <laughs> That's how it shall be remembered. <laughs> That's how it shall be remembered. The history um, books. That same day, the sheriff of uh, Bastrop County, Mr. Morris Cook, decided to... So not far away from us. Not far We're away. We're talking tw about... 25 minutes away from here. Um, he decided to organize a zero-tolerance traffic operation, uh, traffic violation operation, that um, uh, resulted in 64 cars being pulled over, of those, 24 people arrested. Of those 24, 23 were Mexican origin, Mexican nationals mostly, and of those 23, 14 were um, undocumented. And those 14, some of them were immediately deported. Some of them were sent to Pearsall outside San Antonio to wait there for their day in court. Five of them were released the same day, but with a citation to present themselves later in order to initiate immigration proceedings to ICE authorities. And a couple were sent to other jails. The 14 are already facing an immigration proceeding. And are these hardened criminals, Carlos? Not at all. Not, not Cartels, at all. Cartels, members I, of the cartel? <laughs> no. No, I can attest that um, because I, we interviewed them. Uh -huh. um, all of them were stopped because of they didn't signal a change in, in lane uh, with their lights. They were stopped because they had moth in their traffic plate. Uh, Mud? Mud and, and the traffic plate, I mean, the, yeah, the, 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 traffic, the plate could not be seen easily. There, the sticker, the registration sticker was expired. Uh, they didn't stop completely 
in this stop sign. They were, they were stopped by a, a, an agent from the sheriff's office, and all of them, because we interviewed most of them, were asked uh, whether they were born in Mexico or whether they had a U.S. official ID. In one case, they asked him whether he was undocumented. Um, so it was a very deliberate decision on the part of that sheriff to arrest people on the basis of uh, driving without a driver's license. And that is in contrast with what most chief of police in big cities, such as Austin, Houston, um, are doing. They understand that we are talking about low-level offenders, that if we take them to a police station or a county jail, they are going to end up facing removal proceedings because their fingerprints are going to be contrasted with Washington, D.C. databases. So it's exactly what Kate Lincoln Goldfinch was talking about, um, the fact that priority now means anything, really. Um, we have removed that threshold of you have to have had committed a crime. Yes, unfortunately, I yes. And, and it is... And, and we need to face a sad reality. Just as if you are an undocumented person driving in California, this will not happen to you because over there you're allowed to get a driver's license. It's more or less the same here. If you are driving in Austin and you are pulled over, most likely, most likely, the agent is going to use some discretion Perhaps he's going to cite you. Perhaps he's going to ticket you. But he's going to ask you for some kind of ID. And you will be able to show him or her, in case you are in Austin, your matricula consular, your consular ID, or your electoral card. And once he knows that you are you, and he checks in his systems, and, and you are not being uh, looked for another more serious problem. You're not a murderer. Yeah, you're going to be cited and released. But if you are the same person driving without a driver's license in a rural area, and that day the sheriff concentrates resources in an operation like this in order to stop everybody who, and, and arrest everybody who has no driver's license, then you are in big trouble if you're driving in Texas. So I would like to stop right there and open it to the community because I know that case in particular um, was reported uh, by um, Ashley Lopez and it, there's a lot of questions. So if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you have a story, Unfortunately, we only have translation in Spanish, but if you have a question in another language and you need help, let us know. Uh, let's open it up to you. Anybody out there who has a question or a comment? House lights. House lights. <laughs> yeah, can we get the lights in the house, please? Thank you. And Hi. somebody has the mic there. Yes. I do. Hi, my name's Megan. I have a question just oh, on Oh, much how better. Good idea. Thank you. Hi. Um, thank you for being here. On how they decide during those, like when they're pulling over, who gets supported immediately and who goes to the detention center versus who's cited? What we have seen is that if you say that you arrived um, in, for, in the last two years, 
you will not even have a right to go to Pearsall, uh, to go to the detention center. If, if for, for some reason, immigration authorities at the ICE detention center um, conclude that you just arrived, that you have been here for less than two years, right there, they will uh, tell you that you are going to Nuevo Laredo at 3 p.m. that same day. Uh, obviously, it's important for people to know that A, they don't have to volunteer information, two, that they have a right to talk to us in that same uh, detention center. We are, as consular officials, as diplomats, we have a right to interview uh, all our nationals as long as they are willing to talk to us. And right there, we can advise them, and we do every day, about the need to have legal representation. Um, those people who have legal representations are able to uh, uh, fight their case most of the time. Um, but it's, it's pretty much a matter of whether you are being sought for another reason or whether you arrive um, relatively uh, in less than, than two years. Um, it is very interesting, in the five cases that, um, that were released that same day, I remember one who told me that um, he had arrived here when he was 15 years old. And, and he said that he only had one deportation when he was 15 years old. He was deported. His father was very upset with him. He said, oh, you want to go? You're going to go with me, and this time you're going to cross. And they crossed together. Uh, I asked him, why, why didn't you have DACA? Why, did, why you never applied to DACA? And he said, because the moment I arrived, I started working. And I have not stopped working since I was 15 until now that I was 30. I never went to school. I never thought that DACA uh, was meant to me. But the reason I was mentioned is, is because he said to the ICE officer, I was detained when I was 15 years old. I have been detained by the Bastrop Sheriff for three days. I don't want to, I don't want to stay here one more day. I mm. want to leave to Mexico now, even though I have been 15 years without going to Mexico. And the guy who was filling the papers said to him, but why do you want to do that? You have a, do you have a wife and, and, and kids? And, and he said, yes, I have two daughters and I have a wife. And they are going to have to go with me to Mexico eventually. And, 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 and the guy said, you should talk with the guy from the consulate. You should get an attorney and you should fight your case. And he was released that day. He was released with a citation, right? I mean, he has to present himself to a... But there is discretion, and that discretion is being used at the ICE detention center. I cannot say that everybody gets the same treatment. What I can say is that it is pretty um, arbitrary, those decisions, and the people who take them are ICE agents, ICE agents who have a lot of power in that moment. I know you guys have been a precious, precious audience, so we're going to take one more question only. Do you guys want to fight for the mic? Who would like to do the last question? Oh, I scared you. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. There were other hands. Uh, yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> She's like, yes, I'll take it. So you talk a lot about discretion, and it sounds like the process um, between 
not necessarily a, a positive, but more positive uh, resolution is empathy and building these empathy, building this empathy in the system through connections with people. And I'm wondering um, what the process in your eyes for doing that is, since n now we're just seeing these as larger systems and not the humans that are actually operating in these systems. Mm -hmm. Well, in the case of my consular jurisdiction, and I would say in the case of uh, people in Texas, um, my office has two priorities. For example, after the Bastrop case, I went to see the sheriff and I asked him about the, the, the way he organized the operation, his motivations, and he said, he said to me several things, but two I'd like to highlight. One is, I enforce the law without looking at the consequences, right? And two, I do not trust these people. If I cite them and release them, they will never come back, right? So I think that my job and the job of the wonderful network of immigrant advocates that Austin fortunately has, uh, people such as Bill and, and the Workers' Defense Project and, and, and Kate and all, all the people that you know, our work is to, on the one hand, raise awareness about that famous phrase of, I enforce the law without looking at the consequences. Because the law allows for discretion. And most uh, chief of police, most associations of chief of police say that it is contrary to the interest of the community to arrest low-level offenders for traffic violations because that erodes the trust in, in, in law enforcement. And immigrants, as you know, are also the victims and the witnesses of crime. This happened in Stony Point, a neighborhood that I visited. I talked with people residing there, and what the community told me is that nobody's going for milk after 7 p.m. to the only convenience store in the neighborhood because the sheriff placed a car after the traffic operation a couple of days later, and that's enough to deter everybody else. Mass attendance has gone to half of what they usually receive on, on, on the day that there are, there are masses. So we need to, to raise awareness about what the erosion of trust means and how it affects the security of everybody. And the second priority for me as Consul General of Mexico here in Austin is to make sure that sheriff's departments, particularly sheriff's departments in this area, in the suburbs and in rural areas in particular, understand that it is their obligation to notify us about every time that they detain a Mexican national. Consular notification is an obligation of US local law enforcement officials uh, as a result of the Vienna Convention of 1963. And if we are able to know when someone is detained, no matter how far, we are able to contact, legal, to contact that person and most of the time to explain the situation, at least by phone, and then help them get legal representation. The problem is that during this administration, the aggressive call for enforcement of immigration at the local level has made many people in law enforcement um, take initiatives that um, 
in the end, in the, in the long term, are very detrimental to society as a whole. Thank you so much, uh, Carlos Gonzalez Gutierrez. A big round of applause to him. Saida. So um, Saida opened up, and I'm going to step down so she can close. And we are going to be mingling here if you have any other questions. Thank you so much, Joy. And that is going to wrap up our discussion for this evening. Thank you all so much for being a part of KUT's first ever Beyond the Border event. If you didn't get a chance to share your story today, we know that there is a lot to talk about around these topics. We encourage you to leave a message on our Google Voice line. That number again is 737 443-9466, and it is listed on your flyers. Please keep the conversation going and tweet us using the hashtag BeyondTheBorderATX. We want to give a big thank you to the Carver Museum and Library for having us tonight, and to all of our wonderful special guests. Let's hear a round of applause for them. We'd also like to thank Michael Crawford and Juan Alcina for engineering our sound tonight. Kate Lincoln Goldfinch mentioned the pristine radio sound you're hearing tonight, and we have them to thank for that. As a reminder, our multimedia team has set up a room just down the hall where they will be recording video interviews with folks who are here tonight. So if you have a story that you'd like to share with KUT, please do check in with them before you leave. And last but not least, on behalf of KUT News, I want to just thank you all for being here tonight, for listening, and for being a part of this discussion. With that, we will be here uh, mingling. Feel please feel free to say hello, and thank you for coming. <laughs>